assume it's going to be May 2nd, though. All right. Well, if you have a Bible with you, I'll invite you to open or swipe or click or whatever it takes to get to 1 Peter. Uh, we're coming to the end of the letter, actually. We're in 1 Peter chapter 5 this morning. Uh, and last week, we finished up chapter 4, since we're in chapter 5 this week. And, and that section that we looked at in chapter 4, we went from about verse 12 through 19. And I said, you know, this is really kind of the, 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 the mountaintop of the letter. Peter could have written this letter, started by saying, I'm writing to these churches who are you know, the elect exiles, who those who feel like outsiders in their lands. I'm writing, here's how we are to live as followers of Jesus in a world that doesn't follow Jesus. And, and how do we deal with suffering? And how do we deal with hardship? And he built and built and built and built and got to the end of chapter 4. And if he had just finished at the end of chapter 4, we would have said, thank you, Peter. That was a challenge. That was an encouragement. Great way to finish up your letter at the end of chapter 4. Now we've got to sit in this and wrestle through it. And how does that apply to my life? But he continues. And, and it almost seems a little bit awkward the way he continues, if you're allowed to say that about Scripture, but I will. It seems he's maybe gotten a little bit distracted. and He's been talking about following the Lord and, and suffering well. And how do we suffer well? And then he goes on to talk about Elders in the church. And it's just kind of a harsh, abrupt transition. And so here's one of the, the reasons and one of the ways we need to look at this letter and remember that our Bible is not just a collection of books all put together, which, which it is, but it also tells one big overarching story. And so every letter in some way, shape, or other, every book in some way, shape, or another, relates to the other ones because it is all one big story there's i think there's even a bible that has like a red line traced through it and says you can trace the story from genesis to revelation and and see that it is one big giant story and so it seems that that peter has this in mind here he 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 may have just been a a, a blue-collar worker, a fisherman, but he would have grown up around synagogue. He would have grown up hearing the stories. He would have been familiar with his Jewish history. And now as he's, he's writing to the churches, maybe especially Gentile churches, so that may not know the, the, the fullness of the Jewish history, he's thinking, okay, how, how has life changed? What do we need to learn from our history our, our you know, primarily Jewish history, now that Jesus has come, now that we have this new first century explosion of church, how can we learn from maybe the mistakes of the past and lean into the future as we, as we build this thing? And so it seems like Peter's been wrestling with his Old Testament. And again, the stories he's heard and the, 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 the memories of the, the history they say, how is this fulfilled in Jesus, and how do, we, how do we learn from that, and how do we do things right now? Now, if we remember that, and then we look back into chapter 4 a little bit, we sort of glossed over the end of chapter 4, uh, the last couple of verses, because we were kind of camping a little bit in the earlier bits of that. But look at verse 17 in chapter 4. Peter wrote there, For the time has come for judgment to begin with God's household. And again, that seemed maybe a little bit out of place last week, too. However, a few hundred years before Peter wrote this letter that we've been studying for some time, the prophet Ezekiel wrote his prophetic letter, and he pointed to a season of, of God's judgment coming on his people. 
And it says in Ezekiel chapter 9 that that judgment would begin at my sanctuary. The judgment would begin with God's household. Ezekiel 9, 6 says, And so they began with the elders who were in front of the temple. It seems likely that Peter had that in mind as he continued through this letter. He remembers the prophecy. He remembers Ezekiel. He remembers the judgment that did come. And then he takes it and he challenges those who are now in in the new church, in Jesus' church, in the first century church. He takes those comments and, and, and challenges us with them. And so he starts chapter 5 with a, with a so or with a therefore because he connects this chapter 4, verse 17, up into this passage on elders in this chapter. And what he's doing is answering the question of what do our church leaders, what do our elders today need to know if they're going to exercise faithful and good leadership in this end time of refining judgment? How, are, how do we lead in this time of Uh, difficulty and suffering and being an outsider. And so he writes for us. And it comes out as 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 a as a sermon almost. It's it's less less kind of encouragement and building up and more kind of command and exhortation and instruction. And so he's about to preach, but he's he he admits I'm preaching to myself here too as an elder of the church, a fellow elder, he says. He knows the weight of the words that are about to come and that they're not supposed to be taken lightly. And so this is a guy, Peter is a man who has has spent time and meditated long and hard on the relationship between shepherding God's people and suffering and the relationship between the glory that is to come when Christ returns and the world we now live in. And so he begins to teach. Let me read for us 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 5. He says, so then I, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory about to be revealed. Guys, ready for this? Pay attention. I, I, I'm exhorting you in this. Shepherd God's flock among you. Don't oversee out of compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not out of greed for money, but eagerly. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. In the same way, you who are younger, be subject to your elders. And all of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Because, when he quotes Proverbs, God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Peter's going to talk about the elders' role and, and their readiness and then their response. And the first thing he calls the elders of these churches to is to shepherd God's flock. Shepherd God's flock. And what does this look like? I don't know about you, but I don't think I've ever met a shepherd. I've never worked on a farm. I've seen sheep at like Butterfield Acres, and when they're little, they're super cute. But that's about as close as it gets for me. But it is a really important question for all of us because, first of all, shepherding is a, a, is a metaphor or a simile or an example used all throughout the Bible. But it's also important that because if you are an elder, I look around, Mike didn't come, Mike's getting off easy. In the first service, Gary was right, kind of right in front of me. And he knew the text that we were going to preach, but he didn't know that I'd be like, Gary, this one's on us. So, Mike, maybe you're listening later. It's on us too. 
But it's an important question for us to know. What does it mean to shepherd the flock? Because if you are an elder, or if you're aspiring to be one, as other places in the New Testament suggest, some should, then you need to know what's expected of you. What does it mean? I said after the first service, we, if we had 100 people in the room, and I said to you, what's an elder? I could probably get 100 different answers. And so we're going to try to, like, at least a little bit reel that in some. But just as importantly, if you're a part of a congregation, whether it's here or somewhere else or watching online, you need to know what to expect of your elders and what it means. And you need to know what kind of person is expected to fulfill that role so that you can prayerfully and wisely nominate and affirm elders in our congregations. So it is an important question for all of us. And so when we take this section, I said that, that Peter, when he wrote this, seemed to maybe be thinking about Ezekiel. When we take this uh, chapter 5 alongside uh, some of the overarching statements in Ezekiel, we're actually given a picture of what an elder should not look like. So let's kind of start with the negative, if we can. Some things that we learn. First, an elder must not lack character. I've been... Um, trying to grow in character, try to grow in leadership, try to always keep learning. And I can't tell you how many times in the last number of years in blogs or webinars or sessions I've been in, people have said again and again, character trumps competency. I can teach you to do something. I can't teach you character is kind of the thing. right? So an elder must not lack character. Now Ezekiel described the elders of his days as abysmal shepherds. They were horrible. And one of the visions he had, he, he was taking this place and he, he drilled a hole in the side of the temple so that he could see into the secret places, into the kind of the, the dark space where, where the shepherds of the day, being the, the church leaders, the elders of the day, thought nobody was watching. And he said he saw men committing vile abominations. And his angelic guide said in Ezekiel 8, 12, Son of man, do you see what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in darkness, each at the shrine of his idol? And they're saying the Lord doesn't see us. The Lord has abandoned the land so we can do whatever we want. Elders must not lack character. The second, elders must not misunderstand their calling. Later in Ezekiel, God said to him in, in chapter 34, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Shouldn't they be feeding their flock? Yet they eat the fat, they wear the full, they butcher the fattened animals, but you do not tend to the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, healed the sick, bandaged the injured, brought, about the, brought back the strays, sought the lost. Instead, you have ruled them with violence and cruelty. That's quite the indictment. We can't, elders cannot misunderstand their calling. Hopefully, we're not misunderstanding it this way, but you know what? One of the ways we can is you kind of slip into board of directors mode as if we're just trying to run a, an organization, keep the lights on, keep the doors open, and slip out of shepherding the flock mode. Every single meeting, it's really easy to go here. Really easy. And a lot harder to stay in this shepherd the flock mode. So I would hope 
that what Ezekiel has prophesied is not true of your elders here. I don't believe it is. But what a list, right? Strengthen the weak, heal the sick, bandage the injured, bring back the strays, go after the lost. Those who will faithfully shepherd God's character in the role of elder of the church will be men of godly character. They will not be selfish. They will go after the weak. They will visit the sick. They will pray for healing. They will be concerned with those who are walking away from the faith. They will seek out the lost. They will rule with gentleness and grace. And I confess to you again, I don't always do this well. This is not a list of things that your elders have done. We do this perfectly every day, every week. But this is what we're aiming for. This is what we're aiming for and what you can expect of us. Now that list under calling is overwhelming, isn't it? Who can do all of these things? Well, the last thing we find is that the the elders must emulate the chief shepherd, the one true good shepherd. Look back at Ezekiel uh, 34 and verses uh, 11 or so. God says there, I myself will search for my sheep and I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep, and I will feed them on the mountains, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. The role of the, the elder as we shepherd our flock is to follow Jesus, learn from him. He's the, he's the only one that has done this right. The only one that can do this perfectly. And so Peter points us there in verse 4 as well, pointing out Jesus as the chief shepherd when the chief shepherd appears. So it is in our best interest when you've just heard this list of what elders are to be, and then you think, oh, are our elders like that? Maybe we need to swap them out for somebody else. It is in all of our best interest to remember only Jesus fulfills all the word of God. Only Jesus fulfills this prophecy given through Ezekiel to gather God's flock to himself. Now think about this term shepherd because Peter's using it. He says, we shepherd the flock and we look forward to when we get to be with the chief shepherd. And think about Peter's life. You can flip back in your Bibles to the Gospels and skim through and, and what do we know of Peter? I, I, like, I like Peter. He gives me great hope in the Gospels for myself. Peter is often like super confident. He's kind of brash. He seems pretty full of himself sometimes, as I can you know, respectfully say that. He often like jumps into things without fully thinking, uh, without fully understand what, what Jesus has called him to do or what's going on. I just, in one of my quiet times this week, read the transfiguration. And, and so he goes up on the mountain with Jesus and, and Jesus is, is glorified and he, he turns, he says his clothes turns a, a white as if no earthly washer could get them white. And then Moses and, and Elijah appear with him on the mountain. And it's this moment of, of heaven coming down and touching earth. And when Peter should just shut up and take in the moment, he says, Jesus, it's good. Let's build shelters. Let's stay here forever. Right? Instead of just, he's pretty confident that he was the right guy. He was the one that should be leading the disciples. But when it mattered most, when the rubber really hit the road that good Friday, he denied even knowing Jesus three times. 
But then fast forward a couple days later, the disciples, they don't know what to do, right? They, they clearly don't know what to do. And so they go back to something familiar. They're out fishing. And they see Jesus on the beach, and Jesus has prepared breakfast for them. And he calls them to himself, and they share a meal together. And I don't know if he took Peter aside for this conversation or just kind of, kind of singled him out, but it seems like everybody else sort of fades away, and Jesus hones in on Peter. And he looks him in the eyes, and three times says, Peter, do you love me? Like, Peter, do you, do you actually love me? And if you remember the story from John 21, Peter says, yes, Lord, of course. You, you know I love you. But how did Jesus respond in those three questions and answers? Shepherding words, right? And feed my lambs. And tend to my sheep, Peter. Feed my sheep, Peter. So I suspect, take this or leave it, every time from that day forward, when Peter saw a shepherd, saw a lamb, heard the word shepherd, he was instantly transported back to that moment with Jesus when Jesus said, shepherd the flock, Peter. If you love me, I know you do. Shepherd the flock, tend to my sheep, feed my lambs. And on that day, on the beach that morning, when, when Peter did not feel able to lead, when he knew that, that bar that you've called me to is way too high, and Jesus, I just rejected you to, to, to a kid two days ago. But God restored him, called him, made him fit for office, and he'll continue to do that. David Helm kind of sums up this section this way, and he says, This much we can say. An elder must be a model of Christian maturity through godly character. He must protect the flock through selfless service. He must feed the flock by expounding and teaching God's word. He must express his love for Christ by his love for God's people. In short, elders fulfill their roles as shepherds by exercising oversight, caring for the sheep. Now, Peter, so Peter's talked about the role in this letter, the role of the elders, and now he kind of gets into the how, the, the readiness of the shepherd. And just like the first section that we looked at, we, we see three contrasts here. Peter says, so shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of, out of compulsion, but willingly. Don't, don't shepherd the flock for shameful gain, but do it eagerly. Don't domineer those who are under your charge, but be examples to them. And so Peter kind of highlights three pitfalls or three traps for, uh, for elders. The trap of duty, the trap of greed, and the trap of power. So we're going to look at those kind of three one at a time. First, he says, uh, not under compulsion, but willingly. I want to be a little bit careful when I say this, but I'm going to say it anyways because I think it's true. There, there's a very real sense in which a church or the flock is actually harmed when somebody steps into the chair of elder because there's an empty chair at the table. Well, there's three. It'd be nice if we had four again. Our, our constitution says we should have five elders, and we've only got one right now, so we let's just get some butts in the cha- in, at the table, right? If the role of elder is to shepherd the flock, then uh, before I date myself, who remembers the, the Red Green show? Anybody? A couple, we've got a couple Red Green fans? Okay, remember, remember the... Uh, when we're in the man lodge at the end, I can change if I have to. 
high gas, right? Okay, we got. I got an amen out there. So <laughs> I'm a man. I can change if I have to. So to steal, to steal the line, if the role of the elder is to shepherd the flock, not under compulsion but willingly, then I can do it if I have to. I guess is not a good reason to be in a seat at the table. It's not, and I would again, I I understand this. I've I've been a part of tables and seen tables like this where we have a vacancy, so we just need we just need another voice. We just need we just need someone so we can say, ah, we've got a full complement. It'll be good. It can seem like wisdom, but it's it's I think it's actually destructive. Because there's a massive difference in serving out of duty, putting in time because I have to, and serving out of love. God has compelled me. I, 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 I have to do this. God has called me to this. this. This role calls for someone who loves the church and her people and who, who longs to see the church flourish as the church follows Jesus. There, there are times when, when elders need to do things and, and, and decide things and make decisions and, and, and say yes to things and no to things that, that maybe we don't want to. It's, it's not roses all the time. But out of a, a love for the church and a genuine longing to see people fall in love with Jesus, I'll sit at the table and I'll, I'll, I'll take some flack for decisions if I have to. I'll stand up and, and, and try to take some hits if it protects the church. I don't want to. I don't want to be a part of any conflict. That's not, I, like, that's not me. I, I spent years thriving or, or thriving on avoiding conflict. Not under compulsion, but willingly out of a love for the church. The second thing, don't uh, shepherd for shameful gain, but eagerly. Now, th- there's a couple ways that this might apply, but I think it probably maybe obviously most specifically applies to paid elders, pastors like myself. Uh, Today, just as in Peter's day, just as in, we read it in Acts 2, there are far too many preachers and elders who are in it for the money or in it to to, to try to use the church for their own financial gain or use, well, if if I take on this role, then that's a stepping stone to this role and I can use these people to get from this small church to this bigger church and then more people will hear me and then maybe I can write a book and then I all the things, right? Stepping stone for, my, for myself. Or even worse, there are pastors who peddle some sort of false so-called prosperity gospel. Follow Jesus and everything will be great. Follow Jesus and your bank account will never drop. Follow Jesus and your mortgage will just be paid. Follow Jesus and your, your crops won't fail, your animals won't die, uh, or you'll never be sick. The wealth and health gospel, right? Which is not good news at all. And they don't do it to benefit themselves. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we're warned about this ungodly link between someone's teaching and their love for money. In 1 Timothy, Paul writes that an elder must not be a lover of money. In 2 Timothy, Paul kind of reiterates and says that false teachers are, in fact, lovers of money. So an elder can't be a lover of money because false teachers are lovers of money. In Titus, he says again that an overseer or an elder, the language is the same here, must not be greedy for gain. And back in his own ministry in Acts 20, we see Paul said that true gospel service covets no one's silver or gold or apparel or all the things. 
Elders ought to be eager to teach and shepherd, but not eager for the paycheck. The last thing, not domineering, but as examples. And I think there's a lot of, uh, in our world, there's a lot of mistrust of authority, a lot of distrust of anyone who, who has position. It doesn't matter if it's in a business or if it's in politics or whatever else. We have learned to mistrust authority because, as the saying goes, absolute power corrupts absolutely. The saying has stood the test of time. We see it in politics. We see it in business. Uh, God forgive us. We've seen it in churches. But Peter says, no, 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 that's, that's not it. And I think our our tendency to not like this language if we understand how the authority structure of the church is supposed to function, we can be okay with it. So those of us who have the office of elder need to be constantly checking ourselves, constantly. Because the misuse of of power or authority not only hurts the local congregation, but it drives people away from Jesus. We've seen far too many people driven away from the church by domineering leaders, especially lately. Instead, the goal for me as your pastor, for us as elders, is to, to be able to say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I'm not going to get it right every day. So even imitate me as I ask for forgiveness and as I grow, but imitate me as I imitate Christ. We are called to be examples. We're striving to emulate Jesus who came to serve and not to be served. Now, let me take a breath, step away from my notes, and ask isn't strong enough, beg is maybe too strong, plead, please pray for your elders. Please pray for your elders. Now to say that that elders aren't to be motivated by duty or gain or power doesn't mean that there's no reason, no incentive to be an elder because look at what Peter writes in verse 4. Shepherd the flock. Shepherd them this way because when the chief shepherd appears, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. I don't always get this right. I don't always have my eye set on that day as I should. But I do long for that day when I'll stand in front of Jesus and hope to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Much of Peter's letter has been reminding us that this life isn't all that there is. And to keep an eye on the future for for Jesus' return, it's not unique to him. Much of Scripture points us in that direction. Lots of the early church letters and the early church teachings were endure now because Jesus is coming back and and we're not meant for this world. We've got our eyes on another world. I don't remember if we've sang it already. If I'm going to spoil it, we will sing. The earth shall soon dissolve as snow. Oh, shoot, Vern, that is coming. Sorry, Vern. (laughs) We will sing that. But it actually comes from 2 Peter 3. He says, since all of these things are going to be dissolved away, since this, this world isn't all there is, we live in light of another world. It's clear what sort of people you should be in holy contact, contact, conduct, excuse me, and godliness. Now, 
I can guess perhaps some of you are thinking, this is great stuff, but Sean, it only applies to you. Gary's not here, Mike's not here. Maybe, maybe one or two of us are thinking about being an elder someday, somehow. You're right. But again, it's important for elders to know what, it, what it, we're actually called to be. And it's important for the church to know what you're actually calling someone to be. But Peter doesn't leave the rest of us off the hook. Look at verse 5. In the same way, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. And some of you are thinking, Sean's only 40. I'm not younger than him. I don't have to be subject to him. Hang on. Peter, fortunately, goes on and says, All of you, that means now all of us, we're all in this boat together, clothe yourself with humility towards one another because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. See, a key marker of those who follow Jesus is humility and mutual submission. These were consistent marks of Jesus' character and his ministry. If there was ever any young man who had the right to put himself above his elders, it was Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth. But the Bible is clear. As he grew up, we read in Luke chapter 2, he was content to, to sit at the teacher's feet until it was his time. An increase in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God. This isn't new to our generation either. The, the, the young up-and-comers always know that their ideas are better than the ones that the old guys had. Always. You who are younger, be subject to the elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. And so just like Jesus, we, we, we are to be those uh, who are characterized by submission and humility. And I know as well that lots of us don't like that word submit or submission. We're not doing that. That's not us. That's, that was another time. But let me tell you, again, if, if we look at the definition of an elder like we just did in those first few verses, humbly, right? Like this is one of the hardest texts to stand up here and say, do this. Wouldn't it be worth following someone like that? It doesn't make it a lot easier. This isn't me telling you, fall in line. That Peter says in verse 5, forget the rest of that stuff. But Peter says in verse 5, submit yourselves to your elders. Let's go. No, this is in light of what we've called them to be. What we're seeing, not out of compulsion, but willingly. Not out of greed, but eagerly. Uh, not lording it over, but... Uh, caring for those entrusted to you, overseeing the flock, shepherding the flock, going after the lost, finding the weak, binding, bandage the hurt, praying for the sick, all these things. Follow them. Do some of the same things. And follow them as they submit and follow Jesus. Peter grounds all this in the wisdom of Proverbs. God resists the proud, the one who thinks they've got it all figured out, the ones whose ideas are better, the ones who knows that the, those old guys don't know what they're talking about, the one who has their own way, but gives grace to the humble. Let me pray, um, and we'll transition to a time of communion as well. And just thank Jesus for who he is, what he's done, and that he is our good shepherd, our chief shepherd. Let me pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for these words. 
Jesus, thank you that uh, in the midst of a high bar of honestly an, an unattainable standard, you step in and say, follow me. Follow me. So God, this morning I pray for Mike and Gary and myself, elders of this congregation. Pray for the elders of the other churches in our valley too. That you would continue to work in our hearts. Reveal areas of ungodliness and sin so we can repent and come back to you. So we can follow you well. And I pray for our church to be one modeled and clothed with humility, mutual submission, not for any one person's sake, but Jesus for your sake. We pray these things in your name. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered with his closest friends, his disciples, and he took the, the Passover meal that the nation had been celebrating for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, and he turned it to himself. He said that he is the fulfillment of that. Then he was betrayed, he, he took bread and gave thanks, and he broke it. So this bread represents my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. And after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, poured out for you. I'm going to step into the place of of getting between your sin and God for you. As often as you drink it, remember me. And as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the day of the Lord's death until he comes. And so as we take communion together, we're saying, God, you have set an impossible standard for us. Holiness. And we need you. We need you to... to, to cleanse us of our sin, to take our consequences away. Let me pass up the elements.